Like a lot of people, I run marathons, 13 by my last count. But it wasn't until I was watching Britney Runs a Marathon, a critically acclaimed 2019 film, that it occurred to me that people who don't run 5Ks or 10Ks or even full-on marathons are under the mistaken impression that I might be running to win the race. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm training and running a marathon to improve my health, to improve my own personal record, and maybe to brag a little bit about my sub-four-hour Boston Marathon qualifying competition times. Hacking has an event that's similar. They're called Capture the Flag competitions. Yeah, there are winners, and some even walk away with sizable prize money, or a coveted black badge for a future DEF CON. But a majority have no such ambitions. They're there to challenge themselves and to learn new skills. Understandably, like running, there's also a culture around CTFs. Go to ctftime.org, and there you'll find a long list of upcoming CTFs. There's one practically every weekend. And there you'll also see the teams, and you can drill down and see the names of the individual players. The point, I think, is that all these CTFs is that people are learning for themselves through these games how to become better hackers. In fact, some are designed only to teach you through gamification, and you can learn a specific skill, such as how to reverse engineer binaries. At the very least, Capture the Flag challenges you to solve complex problems creatively in the moment, and sometimes with very little context. That's something that's true in the real world, and that's something that's often missing from computer science programs. So how do you learn to think outside the box and become an elite hacker? Well, stick around and find out. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm going back to the beginning, way back to episode one, to look at how various hackers I've interviewed on this show got their start. Most started by competing in Capture the Flag. For a lot of people, the path toward becoming an elite hacker begins with games. Often, it's computer games. And I'm sure there are gamers who see themselves as coding better or perhaps finding cheats. But what I'm really talking about are the instructional games. These are competitive capture the flag events, which are loosely based on the children's game. Here's John Hammond from episode 13 to better explain what I mean. I, I tend to, I guess, try and explain capture the flag as sort of gamified cybersecurity education. Um, it's working through activities and exercises and challenges, really, is kind of the real term, um, but small puzzles that'll help you get in the weeds and really solve a technical problem with real application-based, hands-on learning uh, to test and learn your, your cybersecurity skill, whether it's memory forensics or cryptography or web application security or even like binary exploitation or other tricks in steganography, or miscellaneous kind of red team operations. It covers a lot, 
And uh, that's kind of what I try to explain to people. And if you have an interest in computers, then you should play Capture the Flag because you can learn so, so much just by tinkering, just by playing and having fun. There are two basic forms to Capture the Flag. We'll start with Jeopardy, which is much like the game show, where you have a board with categories and challenges underneath each category worth increasingly more points. Jeopardy is perhaps the most common form of a CTF. Yeah, Jeopardy, I think, is the whole gamut, <laughs> truthfully. It, it's, it's a mixture of everything and that, yeah, you can pick and choose what category you might be interested in or you might have a special specialty in, right? Say, hey, you're really sharp on forensics, but another person or another individual on your team is super sharp in binary exploitation. So they want to tackle that category. Uh, or you could kind of be a jack of all trades and just learn as much as you can, be really well-rounded. But I think either style of gameplay fosters a lot of collaboration and teamwork. So sure, if your buddy is super smart in one aspect, you can learn from them, they can learn from you. It's kind of a community and a really cool culture. And then there's Attack and Defend, or King of the Hill. And that's a version of CTF that you will find at DEF CON. It's exciting because it best mirrors the real world of pen testing and hacking on a red or blue team. I think the other one that most people probably consider is the second flavor is probably attack and defense, where it's kind of like a live game between uh, a red team or a blue team, maybe in that sense of a 2v2, or multiple teams that have their own services they have to kind of maintain and make sure they are up and available. But those have flaws and gimmicks and bugs. And another team that has the same vulnerability that they might need to maintain. And, but you can also go on the offensive. So not only defend, attack and defense, but also attack, right? Go on the offensive and, and beat up the other players. To become an elite hacker, most people have some idea that they want to work with computers someday. Not everyone, though, is immediately directed or driven to playing a CTF. Although, that is in fact how they did get their start in retrospect. Some, like Adam Van Proyen, just kind of wandered into that path, in part because he was interested in computers, and also because he was at the West Point Military Academy, which just happened to have a CTF team which competes in the annual Cyberstakes competition. I talk more about Cyberstakes in episode one. Basically, when I got to West Point, there was kind of a club day where you could pick clubs that you wanted to be a part of. So what to do in your spare time. Um, and as a first year, it was kind of the, the best way you could like make friends with upperclassmen and, and kind of have a real life um, outside of school. So I joined the computer club, which happened to be a hacking club, um, C3T, compet competitive cyber team. Um, and yeah, so I started doing CTFs through that. Um, first CTF was actually the tryouts for C3T, um, where it was kind of a small Jeopardy-style one, pretty easy questions, um, kind of my first experience with assembly, web hacking, all that kind of stuff. Um, and through that, that's how I got started doing CTS. So not everyone is in a military academy. Perhaps then, a better example is Arata, who we first met in episode two. Her beginnings were much more common. A good school, a good teacher. 
back in middle school, I was fortunate enough to be in a, I guess it was a magnet program, like a STEM program. I had a lot of experience doing CS tech stuff for a while. So by the time I got to high school, I kind of felt very on top of like a lot of tech stuff. And I kind of wanted to expand out and explore more. My computer science teacher at the time was very encouraging, I guess, to kind of try different things. And so he found this competition called Seesaw HSF, which is high school forensics. Essentially, he was like, you should go try that. And I like looked at it. And I was like, oh, it's hacking stuff. You know, that sounds pretty cool. The Computer Science Annual Workshop, or Seesaw, is a well-established CTF competition in New York. It's sponsored by NYU Center for Cybersecurity, and it builds itself as the most comprehensive student-run cybersecurity event in the world, featuring nine individual hacking competitions, including CTFs. It is held conveniently over the course of one weekend. But, like a lot of major CTFs, Seesaw actually occurs with two rounds, with an online qualifying round in September and a final round usually in November. But, as Ari from Episode 4 notes, you don't have to have a high school or university sponsor at Seesaw. You can be enterprising, and you can go as your own team, which is what Ari did. I, I did participate in Seesaw, but like as not from like a university team, but from just like a small group of friends. And like, we did not do that well. But uh, like looking at the scoreboard, uh, I saw that PPP was leading like the scoreboard. And I was like, you know, wow, that's that's pretty amazing. And I was very much inspired to like learn their secrets, right? So So I said there was a culture in CTFs. And With that, there are recognized leaders. One such leader is PPP, which stands for the Plaid Parliament of Poning, which is the competitive team out of Carnegie Mellon University. PPP, over its nearly decade-long run, managed to win more DEF CON CTFs than any other team in history. Ari became interested in CTFs in part because of how well PPP performed at Seesaw, and she became interested in how to join the organization. But, but yeah, that was like my first introduction to PPP and I was like pretty much an outsider at that point. Um, so when I got a chance to uh, go to Carnegie Mellon for my master's program, I, that was like one of the first things I looked up. Like, you know, who are these people? Like, how, how do I join? Because I was also interested in playing CTFs. But PPP isn't the only CTF team, and Cyberstakes and Seesaw and Plaid CTF, they're not the only CTFs. There's something out there for everyone in every skill level. Cyberstakes is perhaps a bit unusual in that it runs 10 consecutive days, allowing the players to go to work and school and then catch up and play at night. The general goal with Cyberstakes is to first and foremost introduce and educate people to basic InfoSec skills. Typically, there's kind of like these well-known CTFs, and they're run by the same teams every year. Um, so like PPP does Plaid CTF every year. Um, I believe UC Santa Barbara does ICTF every year. Um, so different teams are kind of put on their own CTFs, and everybody else plays in it. Um, and then there's kind of usually like the finals, like quote-unquote um, DEFCON CTF. 
um, where people who have won, you know, previous DEFCON CTFs or these big um, CTFs or DEFCON Falls um, get to play in. Uh, and that one DEFCON CTF kind of changes hands every once in a while. So there are a couple of CTFs out there um, that do change hands, but I would say that's not super typical. Hint, you don't have to be in a military academy or even in college. You could be transitioning in the adult world. And as I said, there's this website, ctftime.org, and it literally lists all the CTFs. There's practically one every weekend, if not more. Definitely, yeah. It's funny, I think there's sort of a, a CTF season when kind of all, all the uni- universities are kind of back in session. Hey, September, the school year's starting, uh, and you'll see, yeah, hey, some school XYZ is putting on a game, or hey, there's a conference going on and there's another event. Uh, hey, there, we got another competition rolling up kind of from some industry, a company or organization is putting something on. Uh, it's incredible. Just about every weekend or close to it, there's something you can kind of get your hands on and play. So given that there are a lot of these great CTFs, what then is a good entry point for starting a CTF or information security for that matter? For kind of the beginners, kind of like ones just getting started, newcomers that are interested in this field, I do give a lot of love to Pico CTF. Uh, I think that's become well known as just what folks will point to and say, hey, if you're interested in Capture the Flag, this one is really great at holding your hand and just kind of getting you in the thick of it even if it's running simple Linux commands and just being in the command line to navigate around the file system, it'll get you started. And that's fantastic for to really just springboard someone into a great scene and culture. Okay, Pico CTF was started by PPP at CMU, but it was started to get people interested in competitive hacking by teaching them the most basic skills. And it's free. And really, it's not just for kids. Here's Megan Kearns from episode 29 to explain. We talk about being marketed, I guess, at high school students. But if the content wasn't so desperately needed, then our only demographic would be high school students, right? Our demographic is everybody, anywhere, because the content, this type of content just doesn't exist. Even if you go through AP Computer Science, which is an amazing course, they don't really tackle cybersecurity. So getting cybersecurity education materials often comes with a price tag. And right now you can really set that price anywhere you want. With Pico, it's free. It's designed by the security experts at Carnegie Mellon University. So it's kind of like a win-win for the world. So if you're an adult looking to change careers or just build on a skill set you already have, this is the perfect program because you can do it by yourself. And, And we don't know who you are, so we won't judge you. Megan insists that literally anyone can learn more about InfoSec and should. You shouldn't think this isn't for me because I like a different subject. You should just try it anyway. I mean, we're just trying to, we are trying to spark curiosity. We just want you to have the opportunity to gain a little experience in this area. And even if it's a 13-year-old says, I don't like this, that same 13-year-old at 18 may think, oh my gosh, why didn't I like this? I love this. You never know. And a 40-year-old. I mean, if anyone even just interested in learning or changing careers. Another little antidote I always say is like your grandmother is has a cell phone in her pocket. She's carrying a computer around with her all the time. It's likely attached to the internet many times a day, right? She needs to have some sort of cyber awareness. So, you know, put her on Pico CTF.
Okay, so the penultimate CTF is perhaps the DEF CON CTF. It's the biggest and best known, and it takes place during DEF CON, which takes place during the annual Hacker Summer Camp in Las Vegas each July or August. Founded in 1996 at DEF CON 4, the DEF CON CTF competition pits several teams against each other in a King of the Hill style competition. That means teams are not only attacking, they're also defending their own servers at the same time and scoring points along the way. The team with the highest score is the King of the Hill. More practically, they win a DEF CON black badge, which entitles them to attend DEF CON for free for the rest of their lives. Not a bad prize. But not everyone can sign up for the DEF CON CTF. In fact, DEF CON, which is held in July or August, has qualifiers starting in May or June. Qualifiers is a little difficult sometimes because of the timing. Historically, the timing has usually overlapped with either graduation, move outs, final exams, some of the that combination. Uh, so historically for the students on the team, it's been difficult to participate. Now that being said, that doesn't of course stop a lot of the students. A lot of the qualification rounds sometimes are played more heavily by the students that have graduated rather than the current students, which I think is like flip-flopped from most other CTFs. If the timing is right, then I think most people play. I think this year it actually worked out well particularly because of coronavirus, everyone was also home. So it wasn't like you had obligations to be out and about. And even if you made it through the qualifiers, there are a lot of other considerations, such as how many teammates do you bring with you to Las Vegas? There's that part that screams, we'll bring everyone. But there are more practical matters. Until recently, the teams were limited. When we're like working on problems, for instance, if you have like a hundred people working on a single problem, there's like a bottleneck of how many people can efficiently work on that problem. But there's also the issue of you don't want people to be duplicating work, especially in something like DEF CON, where uh, you are dealing with many, many different problems, uh, some of which are live essentially, kind of because like they're attack defense. And so you need to be like watching like what's going on constantly. You really don't want to be duplicating work. So there is like a certain number of people that when you get past that, you start either having issues of like people are duplicating work or maybe you have some people that don't really know like what's going on or where they would fit in best. Um, and then that becomes like an issue for them as well because like they don't feel like they're contributing much, right? And we want people to feel like they're contributing. For us, I think we're probably one of the smaller teams that usually attend DEF CON if not one of the smallest consistently. I think we usually bring between 20 to 25, I think is usually like where we've been floating around the past couple of years. Uh, the reason for that is just because uh, we found that number to be pretty good in terms of like, this is something where everyone that is attending is able to find something to do and to be very like efficient with what they're doing such that we're like making good use of our time. Even allowing for larger team sizes, it's not always in the best interest to have more than enough team players. Remote contributions end up carving out like a chunk of a challenge and like shipping it off to them and then having them work on it. I don't think we've had very much remote participation, mostly because it's also very hard to work on problems when you're not with the team. Why we're, I think, so effective at what we do is because of like that team camaraderie. And then the way that we kind of decide these teams is how much 
effort have they been putting into CTFs? Like how much have they been participating? If they've been making CTF problems for applied CTF, uh, like have they historically also gone to DEF CON? Like if they have a lot of DEF CON experience, they're going to know exactly off, like right off the bat, how to handle the DEF CON experience and to make good use of their time. Uh, newcomers typically will show up and, you know, maybe spend like a day or so adjusting to kind of figure out like where do they fit in? Because there's so many different things that you could do that is just indecisive factor of like, oh, I could fit in here or here. Like, but where is like the best use of my time uh, for the team also? But yeah. And so that I think that's just like an overview of like how we have that team at finals. I'd say if it's like their first time going into DEF CON and they're going into an established team. I think the hardest thing for the beginners is figuring out where do they fit in? Because you show up and you have a team of, I don't know, anywhere from 20 our team or like 80 like some of the Chinese teams and it's just I am someone that wants to contribute I want to do something that you know gets a flag that solves a challenge or something so I can feel good about what I'm doing I can feel like I'm contributing to the team and a lot of people that come their first time kind of struggle I think in figuring out what exactly that is uh, I definitely did and I think it took me by my second time I kind of felt a more like more so like I know exactly like where I fit in best. But yeah, I think just having the patience to do that, communicating with your teammates is like super, super important because if you're just sitting there, just like not sure what to do and you don't say anything to your teammates, you're going to be miserable the whole time. And because no one's going to know that you have no idea what you're doing, right? I can definitely say like my teammates, if I ran out of things to do. My teammates, I'll just say like, hey, do you need help? And my teammates will be like, yeah, I could use some help on this or this or this, or just like, come join me on the venture of this challenge or whatnot. And that makes it a lot more fun. And I feel like I learn a lot more. Uh, so kind of just like, you know, being patient, uh, communicating, and then like humbling yourself. If you don't know something, then you can just sit in with someone else. Uh, but like, you need to tell people that that you're not, you're struggling and you need to find things to do. But yeah, I think those are the most important things for a beginner. Also, if you're aspiring to compete one day in DEF CON CTF, be prepared to give up your entire DEF CON experience. There are so many rooms to visit, so many villages to participate in, and so many talks to queue up for. But for many who actually play DEF CON CTFs, they never see any of that. I have never done anything outside the CTF at DEF CON. And I've been three times, I think. I'm sure many of my other teammates, I'm pretty sure, in the same boat. The most that I've experienced is sitting on the CTF floor and then hearing the other competitions going on, or maybe walking by the tinfoil hack contest or the hack, hack fortress uh, events. It's a little unfortunate because, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff there. But realistically, I think like if we are doing the CTF, we are doing the CTF and we are going to put like all our focus in on that. And if you need a break and you want to like go do something else for a little bit, that's fine. But I think like everyone on the team is like super dedicated to doing their best on the CTF. Um, and so every, I think most people just spend their whole time doing that. For most of the teams, the tables are the tip of the iceberg. Some of the teams actually prefer not to be in the room. I think actually it's kind of a like inside joke that everyone absolutely hates that room because it's noisy. There's people that are coming and going that are watching you. It's kind of like, you know, an aquarium when you're the fish. And yeah, and there's loud music. And actually there was one year where they had just straight memes playing the whole time. So it's very distracting for people to be playing there. That being said, I think you need to have like at least one person there to kind of relay information and challenges to the rest of your team. 
I think how most teams have it set up is they buy a or they buy a suite in one of the hotels and they have it set up so that most of their team is there. That's at least also like what our team does. We have people on the floor that would be useful in terms of they're the captain of the team. So they can go and talk to the organizers if need be. People that maybe are senior are able to deal with like the noise and chaos of the downstairs area. Um, And then also people that might be good with creating tools or pipelining information that is given to us. So for instance, usually sometimes we are given uh, packet captures, so network data. Some of our teammates are very, very, very good at creating tools that are able to efficiently take that network data and to kind of look through it very quickly to find important information, which might be flags or exploits being thrown at us or like other things. Those folks are also very good to have downstairs just because they are sitting in the area where that data is like being given. So we primarily use Slack to communicate. Kind of, we're also moving to Discord now that everything is kind of being remote because we found that having only te- like text only stuff is it's like pretty good you know if your team is like close to each other or at least you're going to see each other like once in a while like we are at defcon discord we found like in terms of like either seeing like having audio or video is really good for like this sort of situation or just you know or the alumni who don't all live together to kind of give that team camaraderie right because you can hear uh teammates. You can speak with them. It's so much easier to communicate some stuff over audio and it just like feels a lot more natural. Okay. So CTFs sound like a lot of fun and they are, and you'll learn a lot from playing, but do CTFs have any real purpose in the world? I mean, is being good at a CTF, is that a marketable skill? I have screamed and I shout from the rooftops. I try and sing the praises of Capture the Flag because it's such a great way to learn and that there is motivation and seeing your name up up on a leaderboard and knowing you can solve just one more and and you'll pass that person ahead of you. Uh, So you'll, you'll go and learn and you'll go and study and research and Google around and try and solve whatever task is in front of you. Uh, it, It cultivates some real feeling of lifelong learning and companies, right? Your employers, they kind of like that. They kind of want that. If you've got this motivation, this passion and drive, uh, seeing their people, seeing their own personnel participate in capture the flag, I think that goes and proves to them that, hey, that that individual is really dedicated and kind of loves this stuff. They want to get more and more of it and they're happy to encourage that. Here's an example. Ari is no longer a grad student. She's out in the real world. And you can find some of her malware analysis out on the internet. Some overlap that I do see um, is being able to like stare at a problem during a CTF and trying to like figure out, you know, analyze what's going on, um, being able to stare at it and just keep persevering, I think is very helpful because um, that directly translate to like work itself because there are a lot of unknowns in like the real world. And if you just give up, it's like, you know, you won't be able to like solve any, like anything really. Um, But as part of my job, I also do like a lot of reverse engineering. Um, So it kind of directly translates to it. And um, some of like the tooling, 
um, in like development work. So playing CPFs, you also do a lot of development work, like setting up infrastructures, um, setting up like different systems to be able to um, be able to play the game. That directly also translates because you know programming is a big part of my job still, even though like you know. In, <laughs> But, but yeah, so um, what else? Uh, so some of the um, being able to understand like how binaries work and how um, vulnerabilities uh, work is also quite important in my job um, because I, I get to deal with like real life vulnerabilities being exploited by um, attackers, like trying to um, get in, trying to like attack basically my uh, place of employment as well as like the users that are using it. And I see this stuff like every day because part of my job is like tracking different uh, hacker groups and. Um, being able to know like what they're up to, uh, what kind of campaigns they're running, that kind of stuff. So um, most of the stuff that I kind of do in CPFs, you know, kind of translates to very well with like what I do in real life. It's important to remember that in playing Capture the Flag, you're also there to learn and be exposed to specific things such as use after free vulnerability, which is surprisingly common. It's CWE 416, in case you're wondering. And use after free refers to an attempt to access memory after it has been freed or potentially result in execution of arbitrary code. Here's Tim Becker from Episode 7. Certainly, I acquired most of my skills initially from capture the flag competitions and um especially lately the capture the flags have becoming have been becoming more sort of real world um so a lot of the challenges and ctfs now uh, are based on real world vulnerabilities or are just actually real world vulnerabilities um that are like now one day so um if you want to get practice in writing exploits on real-world software, CTFs are actually a very great way to learn that right now. It's important to note that no matter how good a CTF might be, it's not the real world. In the real world, you have to find the bug. In CTFs, sometimes the bug is right there in front of you. So, actually, in CTFs, it's more common that the bug is more or less obvious at least in these challenges that are based on real world um, vulnerabilities. And it's more a test and like an assessment of your ability to write the exploit for the bug. Um, so with respect to like learning tools for bug hunting, I wouldn't say that CTFs are the best way to, to learn that, but they're certainly a good way to learn about different types of vulnerabilities that exist and um, get practice with exploiting them. So. Can you use your CTF experience to lateral into, say, find vulnerabilities in your job? Uh, I'll talk a bit about, I guess, the security community in general. Things that I see in the security community, things like bug bounties that people have uh, done, 
exploits that people have found uh, on the news, on Twitter, on whatever. Those things, when I go and I like open and I read about what people did, I'm just like, man, that sounds like a CTF problem, right? Because, you know, a lot of the things that we do strongly apply to what people do in real life. Web exploitation, I think, is huge, especially for bug bounties, because a lot of bug bounties are usually like web applications and you know they're very difficult and you don't have an end goal but if you have enough practice with the web exploitation and ctfs you might be able to find uh certain things or apply you know certain types of vulnerabilities that you found in ctfs to that problem and find bugs and get paid for them and then just other things like you know crazy things that you see in the news that maybe aren't necessarily bug bounties but you know some hacker like broke this or took advantage of that. As a CTFer, you might be like, oh, that was like some type of vulnerability or technique that I saw in a CTF. Um, and a lot of those like new vulnerabilities that researchers find get reapplied back to CTF. So a lot of the really difficult CTFs will actually use zero days or one days that are found by these researchers to create CTF problems. And that's how they make it really hard because they're basically saying, here is literally this real world thing. And I want you to find a vulnerability in it. And that's how they make it really hard. It, it is, CTFs are very important to real life work, but I think real life work is also very important back, um, to get better at CTFs as well. There's kind of like, you need to get good at both. And by hopping between them, you can improve yourself at both of them. Also, when leaving the world of CTFs and entering the real world, it's important to see how you'll fare without your team to support you. And you know, as you uh, graduate from college and you now are like in a workforce and, you know, you have like an actual life, I guess, once again, it becomes a little more difficult to do CTFs. And especially because, you know, you're not with your friends and your teammates and it's just it feels a little lonely sometimes. And it becomes a lot more hard to communicate more complex ideas, especially when you're working on challenges. That being said, I think everyone on the team is like super excited to be on the team. I think the knowledge that we learn is incredible. The friendships that we have on the team are also like great. And I think everyone is just like super excited to play DEF CON. Like even if they maybe don't show up to CTFs super often during the year, DEF CON is like the one thing that everyone is usually like, okay, we're going to go and do like super well and meet up and stuff. Also because we get to see each other like at least once a year. The other time being Pod CTF, uh, the CTF that we run. But yeah, and I think things like Discord and anything else that, you know, involves audio and video has been like helping a lot. It makes people a lot more interested in playing because they can see their teammates and they can, you know, hack pretty efficiently. So I'm wondering, where might all this competitive hacking be heading in the future? I, I have a lot of folks that ask me, kind of from the other stuff that I do, is like, do you think, hey hacking and capture the flag will ever turn into this esports thing mm. where we've got a spectator sport and just like gaming just like hey someone might stream world of warcraft or league of legends or whatever will people stream playing capture the flag and will that hacking become a sport much like gaming has now and truthfully i think it, it will I think that would be very cool and I'm excited and looking forward for that day. I don't think we're there yet. Um, we we got to get a lot more people interested and kind of in the scene, but I definitely agree that it, it aligns really well with gaming because it is 
something to play and tinker with. So yes, you've got your hacker mindset and you've got your gamer mindset where you, you want to compete and you want to explore and play. So definitely, I think it, it strikes a chord with both. I'd like to thank all of my guests on this roll-up episode. Adam Van Poyen, uh, Zerada, Ari, Tim Becker, Megan Kearns, and of course, John Hammond. These are just a few of the voices that you'll hear in The Hacker Mind, and I encourage you to go back and listen to some of those earlier episodes. They're quite good, and I enjoyed making them. I hope you'll enjoy listening to them. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. I don't want you to miss out. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. The Hacker Mine is brought to you every two weeks, commercial free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mine, I will always be Robert Vimosi. <laughs> <laughs>